Today's episode of Thin Air Podcast is supported by Wink. Wink is a direct-to-consumer winery revolutionizing the way you discover, buy, and share wine. Wink is offering our audience members, who are 21 and live in the U.S., a $22 credit plus free shipping on their first order of four bottles of wine as new members of Wink. Go to trywink.com slash thinair and get $22 off when you become a new member. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Thin Air Podcast. We're glad to be back on the air after a nice winter break and we appreciate all your patience while we worked on developing new content. Speaking of new content, Jordan and I produce monthly bonus episodes available exclusively for our patrons over at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. This month, we caught up with some past guests and revisited old episodes that have had updates since we originally aired them. If you want to help support what we do, get stickers, bonus content, and ad-free episodes, head over to patreon.com slash thinairpodcast and choose your pledge amount. We are truly grateful for all the people who have pledged thus far. Now, on with the show. In March of 2017, I spoke to Valerie Sorrells, the mother of Cameron Remmer, a man who, on a business trip to San Francisco, disappeared one night and was never heard from again. He was featured in episode 20 and 21 of our podcast. It was at this time that I first heard about a group of missing men from California known as the Missing California Five. The California Missing Five, you know, those boys all went missing. I can't explain how hard it gets the longer, more time goes by, and the more you hear this less chance of finding them. It's, it's so hard. The Missing California Five are five young men between the ages of 19 and 29 who vanished in San Francisco between 2010 and 2013. They are Sean Seedy, Christian Michael Hughes, Sean Dickerson, Cameron Remmer, and Jackson Miller. We all deserve closure. We all deserve to find our sons, somehow find them. It's not just my message. It's, it's other mothers out there, too, whose sons are missing. As I began reading more about the missing California Five, I discovered a few things. First, all of the men who are part of the Missing California Five went missing within about the same three-year time period, all from San Francisco. And second, all of the men went missing under different circumstances. That is, it is highly unlikely that their cases are connected in any other way than time frame and location. Regardless of whether or not the men's disappearance are directly connected, this group of mothers, Valerie included, bonded together with the hopes that, as a unified front, they could get publicity and eventually answers about their missing sons. Yeah, the California Five is what the news people call them. They kind of sound like a bunch of bank robbers. Close to a year after speaking to Valerie, I got a chance to speak to Trisha Bruckner, the mother of one of the other men from the Missing California Five, Sean Dickerson. So we were able to get exposure for Sean with the other boys together. That's how 
that's how we became, you know, California Five. Oddly enough, since they've been missing, since the California Five have been coming out missing, other boys, other young men that came out missing have been found. But you know what is strange is when the California Five got together, we've not found any of them. I was particularly drawn to Sean's case because of the mysterious circumstances under which he went missing and the possibility that he could still be alive. At the time of his disappearance in 2001, Sean was 23 years old. He weighed about 150 pounds, stood around 5 feet 9 inches, and had blonde hair and blue eyes. Even though Sean disappeared from San Francisco, his life began about two hours east in Modesto, California. Sean had been the only child of Trisha and John Dickerson. See, I met Sean's dad when I was, we were 12 and 13. When you're young, you know, it's the love of your life, you know, all that. John was my first love. We were together through high school and, you know, we went to, we went to junior high and high school and prom and everything. I had Sean when I was 19. And then John was killed on a motorcycle when Sean was two. And then it was just me and Sean. So I raised Sean and then I met Philip when Sean was seven. But when John died, out of that, I got saved and I started going to church. So I raised Sean going to church. You know, he had a ministry called Team Jesus that they went out and did um, with on a team. They went out and did um, uh, some, you know, like dramas and skits and they did karate. You know, they did Taekwondo and he just happened to have, he was a black belt, you know. I tried to get him to do baseball, soccer, you know, whatever. No, didn't want anything to do with that. When he was young, he got into skating. He was an inline aggressive skater. In fact, he's been in a couple magazines. He got into that. So his skating meant a lot to him. So any any, like singular, single type of sports, those are the ones that he was interested in, not a team. As Sean got older, he spoke about how he felt out of place that social situations were difficult for him. Because of this, he questioned how he acted when talking to others. And we noticed a change in Sean when he was like in seventh and eighth grade, but that's normal. You do go through a change in seventh and eighth grade. It's, you know, you're going from a boy to a young man. But he said that he would have to watch people and, and he would have to mimic how they would act to get through life. Like, hi, shake the hand, you know, put your hand by your side smile and nod and act like you're interested. He goes, Mom, it's an, it's an act. It's very exhausting. And then he went, you know, he graduated in 2006, and it was later that year. So he was 17 when he went off to San Francisco. In 2007, Sean packed up his belongings and moved to San Francisco with his longtime girlfriend, Anjulie Droll. Anjulie, um, they met when they were 16, I knew when he brought her in the home that he loved her. Angelie's family lives like they're in a, like a bubble, like the Leave it to Beaver family, like nothing bad happens in the world. Everything is, you know, they, they're kind of like that. And Sean's just like raw. <laughs> Sean's just like, this is the raw truth. Okay, this sucks. The world sucks. I can see what Trisha is talking about when she describes the affection between the young lovers. She sent me three pictures of Sean and Anjulie together, each one capturing a different moment of young love. 
the picture booth at the mall, their heads tilted, making silly faces. An excursion to a beach and boardwalk, laying together on a towel. And what looks like them together at an outdoor event. You can't see it in the picture, but you can tell he's got his hands wrapped around her waist, both of them smiling. After three years of dating during and after high school, Sean and Angelie decided to make the move west to the big city of San Francisco, where Sean could pursue one of his passions, music. Let me tell you something about Sean. Sean is the most brilliant person I've ever met in my life. He, he is unbelievably uh, musically genius. When Sean was playing the piano when he was little, I never took him to piano lessons. I mean, basically, he just sat down and just said, I'm going to start playing the piano. And I'm like, okay. So I bought him like a little keyboard for his birthday. I think he was like nine or ten. It was unbelievable how fast he picked up on it. You know, when he started freshman, his freshman year in school, I said, Sean, you know, you probably need to take some piano lessons, you know. So we started taking some piano lessons, and it was early in the year when they kind of like have teacher-parent, you know, night. I went there and met his his uh, music teacher, and I asked him about Sean, and he said, he goes, Sean is amazing. He's amazing in music. After moving to San Francisco, Sean started playing keyboard for a local band named Fee, performing gigs around the Bay Area. Since Sean's disappearance, the band seems to have broken up. Their Twitter has been deactivated and both their MySpace and Facebook music pages haven't had any new information since 2011. In fact, the song that's been playing in the background is from Sean's band, Fee. While living in San Francisco, Sean would, every so often, take the BART public transit system from his home to the station in Dublin, California, the closest stop to Modesto, where his mom would come pick him up. There was one particular time that Sean came home that he had something extremely important to share with his mom and stepdad before they moved to Denver, Colorado, where Trisha lives today. He said, Mom, I think that I have, um, I think that I'm autistic. I think that I'm Asperger's. And now, before he can come talk to us about this, he studied everything, be, you know, before saying anything to anybody. He, would, he wants to know that he's got his information correct. When I looked into it, I couldn't believe the similarities. Things that Sean did when he was a little boy, it's Asperger's. It's, it's, it's how they are, you know. Sean was never officially diagnosed with Asperger's, but something about the syndrome clearly resonated with him, like feeling alienated in social situations when he was younger. Whatever the case, even into young adulthood, Sean realized that he seemed different from others. In the five years between leaving home and his disappearance in 2011, Sean went to school at San Francisco State University and was saving up money to eventually move to New York with Andrew Lee. This led to them living in an apartment with five other people in an attempt to save money. Sean would get a job at Rolo, an upscale clothing store in the Castro district. 
Given Sean's unique style of dress, it would make sense that he would work at a trendy downtown fashion store. He looks like he's probably about to have an interview with somebody. Seriously, that's how he dresses. He dresses, he's always, he has set trends way ahead before their time. He's a, he's a trendsetter. This brings us to the few months leading up to Sean's disappearance. There are a few crucial details that happened within these months, details that, on their own, didn't seem unusual. But in retrospect, these events give us a picture of Sean's life before he vanishes. The first important event is that Sean loses his wallet and his ID. With no ID and no credit or debit cards, he was forced to use mainly cash and avoid situations where he might need proof of age or identification. The second event is that Sean changes his name and picture on Facebook from one of him to something that can best be described as a catch-me-if-you-can style image. The picture has since been removed, but Trisha, who saw it, explains. It was him running, there was a side view, and holding this old-school briefcase. So he was showing, uh, the sense that I got from the picture, where it looks like it's a blurry picture of him running, like he was running from his wife. That's what I got from it. He had that picture on there. And for a second, I thought, where is he going? Like he was running away from his life. So I called him. I said, Sean, what's up with the picture? Or I had seen it earlier or something, but it was only just that day. When I went back onto his Facebook page, the picture was gone. And I asked him about it because it, it freaked me out. Shortly after that, probably within just a day or two or so, that's when he came up Cloud's Access. He changed his name from Sean Dickerson to Klaus Agnes, a name, Trisha explains, was a combination of two of his favorite bands. And the last event, which it's unclear exactly when this happened, but Sean had gotten into trouble with the law for stealing a dress jacket from an upscale clothing store. He had an upcoming court date scheduled for December 7, 2011. We couldn't find in our research what he was being charged with or if there was a fine or penalty. It is also around this time that Sean started exhibiting behavior that seemed out of the ordinary for him. I found out after he was missing that he was doing some strange things, like he was climbing buildings and sleeping up top on the roofs, even though he had a place to live. He would go up there. And one time he called me and said, hey, mom, guess where I'm at? And I'm like, where? And he said he, he was at a hostel. He was staying in a hostel. And I said, oh, Sean, why, why would you be at a hostel? You know, are you okay? Do you, did you have to leave your place or what's going on? And he goes, oh, no, no, I just wanted to see what, what it would be like. Another friend of his told me that they were talking about some guy that they knew and they were wondering what happened to him. And uh, he said, oh, didn't you hear, you know, he's living on the streets now. And they said, you know, gosh, I couldn't do that, you know. And they said that Sean was very interested in it. Sean saw freedom living on the streets and just not doing this normal, everyday, go to work, pay your bills. You know, it, it just didn't make sense to him to live like you we're living. You, you go to work to pay for a house that you're not in because you're at work. You know, these are the things that he didn't understand that we, you know, 
we pay for, we go to work to pay for a car, but we need the car because we got to go to work. <laughs> so he's like, this is ridiculous. The way we're living is ridiculous. This is the kind of things that he would talk to me about. December 1st, 2011, the day before Sean disappears. The day begins as usual for Sean. He gets up and goes to work at Rolo. Sean had been anticipating this day for a while, not only because it was payday, but also because he was getting his first performance review from the owner. So he'd only been working at this clothing store, which he absolutely loved. He loved working at this clothing store. And everybody was very happy with him. But so that his boss gave him a review. He said it went like normal. Like, oh, yeah, you need to, you know, you're doing good with this, but you need to work on that. He said Sean seemed very normal, except for he had a lot of anxiety. A few hours after his review, Sean was eager to cash his paycheck. So he asked if he could go to lunch early. See, the, the clothing store he worked at was very small. And there wasn't a lot of employees working at it at a time. He goes, well, I couldn't let Sean leave early for lunch because, you know, it's a very small store. I didn't have a, very, I didn't have a staff. He said Sean was bugging me. Like, as soon as he got his check, he just had this anxiety. He was just wanting to get out of there for whatever reason. So he let Sean leave, and then Sean came back. He walked outside and came right back in. He goes, oh, yeah, I forgot. I don't have an ID. Can you walk me to the bank? He goes, well, now he's really making it inconvenient for me. He goes, okay. So I walked him to the bank, which was just down the street. I, we cashed his check. We parted ways outside, and he's, you know, he would be back after lunch. Sean fails to show back up for work that day. In fact... What happens between the time Sean leaves the bank and 1 a.m. the next morning when he arrives home to the apartment he shares with Andrew Lee is largely unknown. What we do know from cell phone records obtained after Sean's disappearance is that the owner of the Rolo clothing store where he worked texted Sean asking where he was and why he hadn't come back to work. According to a 2012 article in the Mission Local, a San Francisco-based publication, the owner of the store received a text from Sean, quote, around 11.30 that night and apologized. Dickerson explained that he had autism. His boss replied that the message sounded like an excuse and that he didn't want to work with him if he couldn't rely on him coming back to work, end quote. Also according to the Mission Local article, later that night, around 1.14 a.m., Sean makes a call from his cell phone to one of his neighbors, who he happens to encounter sitting outside on a shared porch. Sean and the neighbor end up talking for a few minutes. Later, the neighbor would recount that Sean seemed frustrated and had told him about losing his job at Rolo, which seems to be an odd thing to say since there is no record from anyone other than that conversation about Sean losing his job at Rolo that day. So there are a few possible speculations about why Sean had said that. Either Sean had actually been fired, which we found no evidence for, or he meant he lost his job in the sense that he was quitting and never going back there. Or he was lying to the neighbor. Based on my conversations with Trisha, I don't really get the impression that Sean would have been the kind of person to lie about something. In fact, I usually got the opposite impression. If you wanted to know the truth about something, he was the one to ask because he'd brutally tell you the truth. 
with no care or fear at all. He wouldn't notice your disappointment or sadness on you or anything like that. He didn't pick up on stuff like that. So it is my speculation that regardless whether or not he had actually been fired, he had no real intentions of ever going back to work after this incident. After talking to the neighbor, Sean arrives home to Andrew Lee, where he makes no mention about the day's events. In fact, it wouldn't be for a few days that Andrew Lee would learn about this conversation with the neighbor that night and about Sean's job situation. So that night he stayed up really late and Andrew Lee had some friends over that night and she said that Sean was acting really weird. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? And she goes, he was annoying. He was almost acting like a little brother, like he was embarrassing me and he was just jumping around. She goes, I don't know what he was on. You know, Sean doesn't drink or anything. She doesn't know what he was on, if he was on anything, but he was acting very strange. He stayed up really late and she says, you know, don't you have to go to bed? You have to get up and go to work in the morning. And then that's when he, you know, they all ended up going to bed. The next morning, Andrew Lee wakes Sean up because she thinks he's late for work. He gets dressed and runs out the door. But why he didn't tell anybody, he, you know, he didn't say anything about him leaving his job. He didn't say anything about nothing about the job. They just assumed that he went to work like normal. So when she woke him up the next day, he, he pretended like, you're right, I'm late for work. So he grabbed a Pop-Tart and ran out the door. What follows is a series of events that still lack much explanation today. Instead of going to work that day, Sean goes for a walk around town and documents his day in a series of photographs that are privately posted to his Facebook page. The pictures, all in sets of three, show us quite explicitly what Sean did the day of his disappearance. The first picture, which I might add is the only one that is not in a set of three, is of him at the bottom of a yellow slide. Only his brown leather shoes and black pant legs are visible. The next three photos look like you're playing hooky. You know, it looks like you're supposed to be in school, but you're running around town, you know. He went into a store or a restaurant or somewhere where they had like green shutters, like there were these green blinds. He went to his favorite, it was like a Chinese food place. And he took pictures of the food, you know, how they do now with the kids, <laughs> the millennials, you know, but yeah, they took a picture of the food and then took a picture of the plate being empty. The next three pictures are of the beach, one just of the sand, the second of a wave coming over the sand, and a third after the wave has completely passed over the sand. These are followed by three more pictures of the bay, the first one centered with equal distribution of bay and sky. The second one is mostly sky, and the third one is mostly bay. The final three pictures are all different angles of a red chair hanging on a wall in a parking lot, presumably a modern art installment. All of these sets of pictures seem intentionally and artistically composed. Andrew Lee is quoted in the Mission Local article as saying, quote, When we weren't working, we would walk through Chinatown, 
up Columbus and to the aquatic park in Fort Mason, end quote. All places Sean visited in the pictures he uploaded to Facebook the day he disappeared. These photographs are the last known actions of Sean Dickerson. When we get back from the break, what happened in the days after Sean disappeared? What new evidence has come to light over the past six years since Sean was last heard from? And is it possible that Sean is still alive? A voicemail left for Trisha from a sheriff in Colorado sparks new hopes in this case. I have a couple of real recent sightings of him. We uh, did determine that he was here, um, so he is alive. Thanks to Wink for supporting our podcast. Wink is targeting a new generation of wine drinkers who want to do away with the pretense and simply enjoy reasonably priced great wine. Wink custom tailors wines to the taste of the individual consumer and delivers three bottles of wine each month to your doorstep for $39 plus a flat $6 shipping rate. Visit Wink and take the 20-second palette profile quiz to get instant wine recommendations based on your unique profile. Wink is offering our audience members who are over 21 and live in the U.S. a $22 credit plus free shipping on your first order of four bottles of wine as a new member of Wink. To receive your $22 credit and free shipping, go to trywink.com slash thin air. That's trywink.com slash thin air. When Sean didn't return home that night of December 2nd, 2011, Andrew Lee, his longtime girlfriend, and his roommates didn't suspect anything odd. After all, they had gotten used to the idea that sometimes Sean would go off and spend the night at hostels or sleep on rooftops. However, Sean disappeared on a Friday and had a scheduled court appearance the following Wednesday, December 7th, for the coat he was caught stealing a few months prior. He, he stole the jacket in some sort of a dress store, like a a suit jacket. Andrew Lee and Sean's roommates thought that if Sean was sleeping somewhere else besides their apartment, that he would most definitely have to show up by that Wednesday when he was due in court. When Wednesday came with no sign of Sean, they knew there was a problem. He was supposed to go to court that Wednesday. Well, Andrew Lee knew that he had court that Wednesday, so they didn't say anything to anybody until Wednesday. Wednesday came along and they went to court to see if he was going to show up and he didn't show up. So then that's when she decided to call me. She's never called me before. So when she called me that day, I thought, that's weird. She was saying, is Sean there? And I said, Angelie, this is Sean's mom. Uh, you know, we're in Colorado. And she goes, oh, I know I'm calling you guys. I was just saying, if Sean's there? And I'm like, why would he be here? Now, Sean had paid for tickets to come out to be with us for Christmas. 
that year. We're talking, it's like not another three more weeks till Christmas. So I was like, why is she calling me? Why does she think that Sean's here? And I go, no, I haven't seen him. And of course I call, but he's 23, you know, he's not going to call me right away. He's living his life, you know, in San Francisco. So it wasn't unusual for Sean not to call me right back. I just thought it was a strange call. A little bit of me thought that maybe she blew it and like he was coming out to surprise us. And so she thought that he was here. So I kind of got excited. It's important to note that at this point, Angelie didn't mention anything to Trisha about Sean being officially missing, just that she hadn't seen him. With the strange call weighing heavily on her mind, Trisha calls her sister, Terry, who still lived in Modesto, to tell her about the situation. So my sister was having weird feelings. Like she thought something was going on with Sean. She was calling him and he wasn't returning her call. So she took off out to San Francisco from Modesto. And when she landed on Angelie's doorstep, I believe this was either Thursday or Friday. I'm not sure. She said, where's Sean? And they go, we haven't seen him since Friday. Nobody has seen him. And she was like, what? What do you mean nobody's seen Sean? Did you say, say anything to my sister about him being missing? She goes, no. So she went around looking for him. And then I got a call on Saturday. My sister called me. As soon as she called me, I said, where's Sean? Immediately when Terry called me, I knew. I knew that they hadn't seen him. You know that 48-hour show where you get 48 hours to figure this thing out? <laughs> you have some sort of a chance. I had nothing but, you know, mine was eight, nine days later. Even though Trisha was only learning about Sean's disappearance a week after the last reported sighting, it is true that Andrew Lee and Sean's friends had officially reported him missing to police the Wednesday of his failed court appearance after she spoke to Trisha. Despite the fact that Sean was officially reported missing, little was done by police to look into Sean's disappearance or alert his family. Now, when they reported him missing to the cops, it was pretty much like, yeah, just fill out a form. They did nothing. The, the, police, the police station and the, and the um, missing division there, they never called us. They never called you? They never called us. Well, first of all, I'm trying to even comprehend this missing. The word missing is so foreign. You know, who goes missing? Called the police station and they said, yeah, we know. And I said, why didn't anybody call us? You know, you don't, you guys don't call the family anymore. And they said he's a young male and they have a right to go missing if they want to. But really young men are our least of our worries. They're like the bottom of our priority is young males that go missing. Without the help of local police, Terry, Trisha's sister, is left to investigate on her own. It is Andrew Lee and Terry who were able to put enough pressure on police to obtain phone records, but without an official order from the judge, they couldn't get the cell phone company to ping Sean's phone. Andrew Lee tries calling it for the first few days, but it eventually goes straight to voicemail. One important clue they uncovered about the day Sean went missing, because of calls he made on his cell phone, was an incident he had at a local bicycle renting company. The cops, of course, found out he was missing, and then, you know, we, they did, um, they pulled his phone records, and they saw that was one of the calls that he made. He called the bike store, then he showed up at the bike store, and he tried to rent a bicycle, but before Sean came up missing, he had lost his wallet. 
he had no ID or anything on him. So I guess just with cash, he tried to, you know, rent a bicycle and he denied him at the store. Oh, so he wasn't ever actually able to get the bicycle. No. But they were able to identify him as the person that was there trying to rent the bicycle, though? They remember him very well because I guess he had a fit because he couldn't get a bicycle. He had the money, but they were like, well, we need more of the money. You have to have like a credit card to put down. We have to know who you are. You don't have an ID. You know, we can't just say, hey, just give us 50 bucks and then, you know, hopefully you bring the bike back. You know, he kind of had a fit in the store, I guess, of some sort. And they remember him. They were like, oh, yeah, we remember that guy. Yeah, he tried to rent a bicycle and then he was denied. So besides the incident at the bike shop and the pictures he took, there are no other clues uncovered about the day of or days after Sean's last reported sighting in San Francisco. While Trisha and Andrew Lee are adjusting to their lives without Sean, they begin reflecting on their experiences with him to see if they could shed light on what might have happened to him. Did he leave voluntarily? Was he met with foul play? Did he take his own life? I'm curious to know whether or not Sean had ever been depressed or expressed any thoughts of suicide or anything in that regard. Yeah, because I went down that road, too, with thinking about that. I found out after he came up missing that he was, you know, he went through depression. They would find him in his room. He'd be in there for a couple of days and not eat or anything. But they told me that they had they had a party one night. And, you know, kids were kind of young, you know, young people. They kind of just sit around and talk about, oh, if I died, I wouldn't want to die in a fire. You know, if I did this or, you know, have you ever thought about doing suicide? You know, they just were talking about death. And they said, they remember Sean saying, I would never kill myself. I would never do that to my mom because she lost my dad. In the here and now, that all sounds good. But when you're depressed, I, I understand people do things in that moment of, you don't think about my mom. I'm not thinking about my mom. You know, I'm not thinking about her feelings. You know, it's just you and your sadness. He could have, but where? I thought about when he walked on the, on the, walked on the roofs, you know, did he fall? Did he twist his ankle? Did he, but then I'm like, well, if he did, he would, they would have found him. So anyway, going forward, um, uh, there's this gal that told me about the rainbows. Do you know about the rainbow family? No, I don't. Uh-uh. Okay, boy, that's a whole new thing. You got to look these people up. I wasn't sure why Trisha was mentioning the Rainbow family to me, let alone who these people were. Up until this point in my research of Sean's case, I had heard no mention of this group of people called the Rainbow family. So I took her advice and I looked them up. It's hard to explain what the Rainbow Family is exactly because they practice a form of anarchy that includes no centralized leadership or representation. They have no official membership list or organization spokesperson, so finding someone to talk to was impossible. The first Rainbow Family gathering happened in 1972 when a group of free-spirited individuals got together to pursue their larger goals of peace and love on Earth. 
The idea quickly spread and smaller groups of people began living a lifestyle that could be described as anti-capitalist and off the grid. These smaller groups would meet up with other groups to form large rainbow gatherings. Some of the largest rainbow gatherings in the U.S. have attracted between 10 and 40,000 people at one time. There, they spend weeks, sometimes months, living in an independent community. A 2012 documentary called We Love You went to a gathering and talked to members of the Rainbow family. We have created a space where magic can exist. Well, I feel that rainbow is a spiritual thing. I heard about rainbow when I was 21, hitchhiking around the country. Everybody else out in the world seems pretty stuck in the patterns that we've created. Maybe it's utopia, maybe it's a vision. It's taught me a lot about how to uh, survive on my own. But I think coming back to the earth and coming back to a simple kind of lifestyle in the woods to sort of consider there's water, there's wood, you have to protect against the cold. It takes people out of this capitalist attitude of consuming all the time. I like the rainbow gathering because it's about freedom. Trisha goes on to explain to me the connection between the Rainbow family and Sean's disappearance, telling me that she had received a tip from someone saying that this group sounded like something that Sean might be interested in. Trisha, catching wind of a convention happening nearby in Utah, decided to visit to see if she could find Sean or to see if anyone had seen him. Nothing much comes out of this trip to Utah, and Trisha returns home with no additional clues about Sean's whereabouts. I'm not sure what it was about the Rainbow family that was so compelling to Trisha. Perhaps she could see Sean identifying with their philosophies and way of life. Regardless, it gave Trisha a newfound hope that Sean could be, after all these years, still alive. Later, Trisha hears about another mother from California whose 15-year-old son was missing and also believed to be a member of the Rainbow family. This other mother was planning on attending a large Rainbow family gathering in Norwood, Colorado, where her son had been sighted. Trisha asked this mother if she would take Sean's picture with her and keep an eye out for him while she was there. They got out there. They were looking for her son. Well, they go to this bonfire. At the, at the end of the night, they all like to sit around and play music. So she goes to the bonfire. Well, she sees Sean. She sees Sean. And then she talks to her friend, is that, is that, is that Sean or what? And they were like, yeah. So I get wind of it, that Sean's been spotted in Norwood, that he's still there. Excited and reinvigorated by this sighting, Trisha and Philip take off to Norwood to see if they can find Sean amongst them. Well, before we left, my husband goes, call the Norwood Police Department. And I go, okay. Call the Norwood Police And I said, hey, you know, my son's missing. So I, I said, hey, can I send you a flyer of my son just in case you never know? And he goes, yeah, why not? So I sent him a flyer. Actually, when he got off the when he got on the phone the first time, he said, "Yeah, this is Sheriff Todd. How can I help you?" And I said, "Hey, Todd." He goes, "Yeah." I go, "You're the man. You're the man that's going to help me find my son." Trisha and Philip pack up their vehicle and make the almost seven-hour trek from Denver to Norwood, Colorado. 
We take off, we go up there. Oh God, it was raining and muddy and then it was hot and it was cold. Oh gosh. We walked through the mud and there wasn't a lot of people there. There, there was, but it, they were scattered. And we asked, hey, what's going on? We noticed people are leaving and we noticed, we know that you guys haven't been up here very long. We're leaving. They're like, oh, well, they didn't bring any water. We don't, we're, we have shortage of water. And so we're drinking out of the creek and, and people are getting sick. We were there, what, four days? We slept in the van. So we come home. I'm filthy, dirty, and exhausted. So I go take a shower. I get out of the shower, and there's a message, and I listen, and, and it was Sheriff Todd. This Brucker, uh, Todd Rector here with the San Miguel County Sheriff's Office. Uh, I wanted to speak with you a little bit more about your son and uh, have a couple of real recent sightings of him, like in the last day or so. Uh, um, I have information where he's heading and wanted to advise you that we uh, did determine that he was here. Um, so he is alive. From, uh, um, some of the rainbow folks that uh, were with him as yesterday, and uh, um, I'm happy to discuss what uh, we uncovered. Thank you. So what happened was four of the rainbows came down to the main town there, and they broke into stores. They broke the windows and were stealing stuff. So they got caught, and they got in trouble, and, you know, they were arresting him. And he said, well, hey, let's show them Sean's picture. So they separated the boys, and they showed them Sean's picture. And the boys are younger than my son. They're probably about the age that Sean came up missing, early 20s. And they showed, you know, each separately, they each showed him Sean's picture, and they said, do you, do you know him? And they go, oh, yeah, we know him. His name's Trip." And they go, oh, you, you, you know him? And he goes, yeah. But they go, well, we don't. And it says Sean Dickerson on the flyers. It's missing, you know, Sean Dickerson. They go, we don't know Sean Dickerson because that, his name's Trip. And they said that um, that they also knew that he was a missing person because he told them. Since those initial sightings by the mother in California and the reported claims by members of the Rainbow family that Sean was living amongst them using the name Trip, there have been no additional sightings or confirmations of Sean's whereabouts. But you go through emotions like you would not believe. I have, I have gone through everything in my mind that could have happened to Sean. I'm, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to pay rent. I don't want to work for the man. I mean, it's pretty much like stick it to the man, <laughs> and then just go off and live like 1969 and hang out on Tate and Ashbury. You know, and I'm like, if that's if that's what you're doing, then I'm okay with that. If you're just trying to just go find yourself, you're young, you want to go play your music on the corner and. But if that's what you want to do, let me buy you a phone so you can keep, you know, so you can call and say, I'm okay, I'm alive. You know, I'm starving and I'm dirty, but I'm alive, you know. We don't know where you are. And then it makes me mad that if you are alive and you decided just to become, you know, just to go live on your own and don't say anything to us, well, that makes me mad because we're hurting. We're hurting and he's not giving us any relief. And we've been doing this now for, well, December will be six years now. We're going on to six years. When someone dies or passes away, you know. You don't like it, you know, but it's a final thing and it's a fact. And so you begin to heal. You may not be completely over that person or, you know, they're hard to replace or that kind of thing, but at least you can heal. When you have someone that's missing, there's no healing. Today, 
Sean would be 27 years old. Because of the nature of the Rainbow family and the structure of their organization, we are asking all of our listeners to chime in on this conversation. Have you been to a Rainbow family gathering? Are you currently a member of or used to be one and are willing to talk to us about your experience? And more importantly, have you ever encountered someone at one of these gatherings named Trip that fits Sean's description? If you have, please contact us at contact at thinairpodcast.com or visit our website thinairpodcast.com and fill out the contact form. We would like to thank Trisha Brucker for talking to us about Sean. We would also like to mention that we reached out to both Andrew Lee and Sean's bandmate, but we never heard back from either. Music today provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out their incredible selection of music at sessions.blue. For more information about Sean, to view his missing persons flyer and see the pictures he last took before he disappeared, visit our website at thinairpodcast.com. Thin Air Podcast is produced by me, Daniel Calderon, and Jordan Sims, with production assistance from Nate Halda. One of the rewards through our Patreon is to get a shout-out as an executive producer of our show. The executive producers of Thin Air Podcast are Adam Barbary, Irene Ryan, Sarah Donahue, L. McManus, Corbin Tender, Wendy Gabaret, Bridger Mobley, Susan Anderson, Jack and Christy Lupian, Drusilla Dents, Rebecca Hardberger, Heather Kedu, Bonnie Mortensen, Mistea Pena, Elizabeth Farmer, and Anthony Loper. Thank you so much for all your incredible support.